Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, and thank you for uh, the one who died in our place. And thank you, Lord, for this reminder and song today, and we, we pray that as we approach your word, that you would continue to show us the glories of Christ and help us to understand even more the significance in which Christ's death and his blood shed for us, has accomplished for us, at, in, not only for here and now, but also for all eternity. And we praise you, Lord, for Jesus, and we ask that your spirit would be our teacher now and open up your truths to our minds, illumine our minds so that we would understand what you have to say to us today. And God, we pray that not only would you give us understanding, but you would help us to respond in obedience, in faith, and trust in Jesus even more. Lord, we, we know that as we grow more frail, Oh Lord, we, we come to realize that all that we look to, all that we trust in really is, is will fail. But Lord, Christ never will, and you never will. And so Lord, continue to teach us and grow us in our faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior and our King. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters, and uh, we look to the Word of God now. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews once again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through 28 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews 9, 15 to 28. When I was a new kind of new, I probably wasn't even, was a, I was an unbeliever actually at that. When I was an unbeliever, starting to go to church, and, uh, and then even as a young Christian attending church, there was something that I found strange about church. Uh, and maybe you remember that time when you started, may have started attending church, and if you can remember that time, or maybe some, for some of you, maybe right now. But uh, there's this idea, like, what, what did you think about church when you started going? And I remember one of the strangest things was uh, particularly about something about the songs that we sung. And I think you guys, are, you probably noted it too, I'm sure. But you notice how many of the songs that we sung about was about blood. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so, you know, we, we sang about, you know, things, about, well, you know, just like normal things, you know, the 80s things that we sang about, the, you know, wearing sunglasses at nighttime, and how, you know, you just got to tell people to beat it, and, you know, you got to tell people to, you know, that, that kind of stuff, uh, and, of course, the typical love and romance songs. So, come to church and then start singing about the blood, um, blood of this, blood that. It was a little weird, actually, a little unusual. I mean, of course, I knew what they were talking about, what they referred to, but, you know, when you start singing with such passion, you know, what can wash my sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? That's just, that's a, you know, and then he talks about uh, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb, or even the even uh, there, even the song that we sang today, there's a fountain filled with blood, you know, fl- you know which uh, filled with the veins from Jesus. I forget the exact word, but it's like, oh, that's pretty uh, descript. You know, and um, it was just odd. And of course, we, I think we understand when we think about the term blood, uh, it, was, it was just a, it's, it's a big part of the Christian faith. We'd sing over and over, and the more, especially the older hymns would have a lot more references to blood. You could see it in the refrains and the choruses and the verses such that. 
And of course, we understood. That I understood eventually, and explained to me, and as, as I heard the word of God preached, and I think many of you know, that when we talk about the blood, we're talking about how Christ shed his blood for our sins. But still, nevertheless, it was unusual. Even in our songs today, the more modern songs, we don't tend to have songs that just uh, focus on the word blood. You know, this, uh, you know, the, oh, the glory of the blood, you know, we don't sing that, or we, oh, praise the blood of Jesus, or something, well, not, that would be blasphemous, but, you know, something like that. We do sing about it here and there, but it's really not our focus. What we often find in our songs today, we find terms such as Christ's death or Christ the cross of Jesus, and those all in many similar ways, refers to the death of Jesus. But if we read our Bibles we, and are familiar with our Bibles, we actually come across this term blood all throughout the Old and New Testament. Uh, it is, since it is a symbol of life and death, it's not surprising that we do see the term death or dying all throughout the Bible. But the term blood nearly appears as many times as death and dying in the, in the Scriptures, near, uh, some 400 times in the Bible. Blood, then, definitely is a recurring theme of the Bible. We know that there is no life without blood. We just try to you know, pour out all our blood, and we will find out very quickly that we will lose our life. Blood symbolizes not only life, but it also symbolizes death. And death is a major theme of the Bible and of human history. And it is a key theme in our passage today. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to 28, we're going to learn that Jesus, we will be learning that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant through his blood. And for this reason, he is our hope in the face of our own suffering and inevitable death. Uh, You may not be facing it right now, but every single one of us will one day begin to experience the inevitable decay and decline that of our physical bodies and even mental capacities that leads to death. And as that moment draws near, brothers and sisters, Christ is our only hope. He's our only hope. To the Hebrew background believers in the early church, this letter then, this passage was written to encourage them to hold on to faith in Jesus in the face of persecution, suffering, and death. Tempted because of persecution to turn back to the old covenant rituals and sacrifices for their hope, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, reminds them that they have a, a great high priest in Jesus who mediates for them a better covenant, one that they need to hold on to. In this passage, if you're hearing it today, if you've been with us for a while, it may sound familiar. I, I actually preached this not too long ago, but uh, I just want to keep on reminding it by maybe a reminder, uh, cover it again for us, because it's in the context of our study of Hebrews. And we're going to look today at uh, three points for about three explanations for why Christ offers a better covenant through his death. Three explanations for why Christ offers a better covenant a better covenant than the old covenant through his death, through the shedding of his blood, really. And that is, we're going to look, number one, first of all, number one, in verse 15 to 17 of our text, we're going to learn that the new covenant required a death. Our first thing we must understand is that the new covenant required a death. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9 with me. We're going to read verse three, verse, first three verses. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. 
So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Verse 15 begins with, you notice, for this reason. So it's inevitably you've got to ask yourself, what is this reason that it's referring to? It refers to back to the previous text where Christ entered the greater tabernacle of heaven. When you sang that song earlier today, upward uh, to, uh, to Christ, I look. You know, where, did, where were you thinking? At first I was initially thinking of the cross. But then I realized Christ is not there. So I, my mind immediately thought, oh, reminded that Christ is in heaven. And so I had to close my eyes, not look at the cross, and just think about where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That's where he is. Christ has entered that greater tabernacle, the greater dwelling place, the greater holy place of heaven where God's presence is. And he entered that through his own blood. We just, uh, according to verse 14. And this was in contrast to the earthly Levitical priests who entered, would enter the earthly tabernacle either daily and annually, and they would enter covered through the blood of goats and bulls. We saw that contrast last week, or uh, last time when I preached through uh, uh, early part of chapter 9. Because Jesus entered the true tabernacle where God is, the author then states his main point. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And that's the, really the main statement of this passage. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. As we covered in Hebrews chapter 8 earlier, the new covenant is a reference to God's promise through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. And in that chapter, we had studied how the new covenant was contrasted with the first covenant or the old covenant. And that contrast, the first old covenant, and that, that first old covenant referred to the Mosaic covenant, where God had given Israel all his, his laws and, and he promised blessing if they obeyed and yet curses if they disobeyed. Yet because of Israel's disobedience, we read in the Old Testament and, its fail, and her failure to keep God's law, they were eventually exiled from the land. And that's what happens in the context of Jeremiah when Babylon, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, came and destroyed Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, took all the Israelites, the remaining Israelites, captive into Babylon. But as a comfort to Israel, God, whose loving kindness is everlasting, is remained faithful to Israel. Though he would discipline them and send them in captivity, he would promise them, of a, uh, give them hope. And he promises them, Though you failed, and I'm judging you for this, I'm going to give you a new covenant in contrast to the old one. A new one where he would give them a new heart, a new restored relationship with him, a new knowledge of him, a new mercy that they would experience from him where he would remember their sins no more. And this new covenant promised in Jeremiah around 500 B.C., Jesus Christ came nearly 600 years years later to be the mediator of that new covenant. And that's the, this idea of mediators is important, is a key word. Yesterday I read in the news, maybe you've been reading the news about the, the war in Israel with Hamas. I read about how Israel, the United States, and Hamas were negotiating basically a, a deal for the release of hostages. And it was, it was interesting because I, I just popped out at me because I was studying mediators it, that the mediators that were acted as go-betweens between these respective parties was the nation of Qatar. 
You guys know that? You guys probably know that, knew that. But anyways, I didn't really knew that. So, oh, that's kind of neat. Why Qatar? Why not some other nation? Why Qatar? Because Qatar, in, some, in a unique way, had access to all these respective groups. They have a relation with Hamas. They, some of the Hamas's exiled leaders live in Qatar. They have a headquarters, a kind of official headquarters there of Hamas, in, in a way, like an office. But they, Qatar also has access to the United States. We have a base there in Qatar. And so the Qatar can act, can act as media because they have access to the respective parties. Christ acts as our mediator between us and God because he has access to both parties. Being, first of all, the Son of God who is seated at the right hand of God, he has access to God the Father. And then secondly, he has access to humanity because he came to be a man and took on flesh. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's how he's the media, can be, be the media, perfect mediator for us. Now, when we think of mediator, we think about mediator, we think of someone coming in, helping two sides to basically compromise, find that happy middle ground. But in this case, where the two parties involve unholy, sinful men and holy God, there really is no middle ground. Uh, there can be no negotiation where God says, well, you know, hmm, you know, all right, I'm just going to, I'm not even going to, I'm going to let you slide. I'm not going to judge these sins here, but I will judge these sins here. For we have sinned against, all humanity has sinned against God. God has done us no wrong. He is, he is perfectly righteous and, he, and as a holy God, he must punish sin. Exodus 30, 34, 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He would cease being himself if he would just overlook sins and let them not go unpunished. But not let them go punished. So how can there be peace then? How can there be a mediation between these two parties, unholy man and holy God? How does Christ mediate between the two? By dying, by the shedding of his blood, by his death on the cross for our sins. For he, we all, under, we all know that Jesus took the penalty of our sins on the cross so the holy God might be satisfied. And because he died in our place, we who put our faith in him can be restored to a right relation with God the Father. A death has taken place, namely Christ, for the redemption of transgressions that were committed by Israel under the first covenant. Everyone under the old covenant were guilty. God gave law, but that law could never save them because all of them were sinful. No one could keep the law. Everyone deserved God's wrath. There was none righteous, not even one. Christ's death, though, redeemed from the punishment of sins all, of, all, of, all those who put their faith in him. Many un- people who read the Bible, particularly if they're not careful, might come away thinking that the Old Testament taught that people were saved by keeping the law. But in the New New Testament, people are saved by believing in Jesus. But none could keep the law, remember. Instead, the law had a purpose as a tutor to reveal to Israel and, in fact, to reveal to all mankind our sinfulness. That's why we needed the forgiveness of sins, which is through the new covenant that is promised. That's why we need that new mercy that comes in the new covenant where God would remove our sins from us He would remember them no more. The old covenant saints in reality, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all saved in the same way that you and I were. 
are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who are called to salvation receive this promise of eternal life through the new covenant promises. And this was accomplished or ratified through his death. Verse 16 to 17 of chapter 9, and that's a, we spent a little time there because that's the key verse in verse 15, but verse 16 17, when we read it, especially in our NASB, it, it uh, talks about a covenant. When there's a covenant, a death is required. But uh, verse 16 to 17 essentially is an illustration. It further illustrates the necessity of death by the, using the example of a will. The word for covenant has multiple translations possible, and one other translation is this idea of a, cov- of, a, of a will or testament. And that's how it's used here in verse 16 17. You know, when you have a will, many of you probably have made a will. I know our, we have a will, and, and we've listed basically our estate and possessions and things like that uh, and who they might go to, but they don't go to those people yet. Why? Because, well, I'm still alive. Uh, and until I die, or and my wife dies, uh, all those things are going to remain in our possession. It's a, it's will. It's in effect. It's legally binding. I, I, you know, seems like I hope I hope so. Um, but these things will not will not come into in effect until my wife and I are dead. And that's the point of this testament, a co- those translated covenant and as, but it's really a, a testament or a will. And only when Christ died, when Christ died, did the new covenant become valid. It came into effect. Christ is a mediator who brings about the peace between God and man through his death. As we read in our call to worship, 1 Timothy 2, 5, 6, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Without Christ's death, there could be no new covenant. There is no forgiveness. There is no new relationship with the Father. No promise of eternal life. And we remember this every month when we take communion, which as we did last week. We remember when we take the cup, we remember what Jesus said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, he said. He was teaching that the new covenant required a death. Specifically, his death. And, this, and that's, the, that's the first thing we need to understand. That the new covenant, the ratification of it, coming, it's coming into effect, required a death. But we see this not only true of the new covenant, but we see this also true of this old covenant. This, is our second, this leads to our second explanation for why Christ offers a better covenant through his death. That In verse 18 to 22, we re- learn or reminded that the old covenant required death as well. Verse 18 to 22 Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For, even, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The first covenant referred to here in verse 18 is, again, that Mosaic covenant, just as we saw back in verse 15. When Moses inaugurated the old covenant, we learn here that it was inaugurated with blood, with a lot of blood, really. Um, 
This word blood appears six times in these verses. And whenever we think of blood, we think of blood. There's life in the blood, but the blood was an indication that, that some creature had died. This event that's described here where the Old Covenant was, requir- was ratified or inaugurated, it was begun with blood, is recorded for us back in Exodus 24, verse 3 to 8. I want to read these verses to you and hopefully just kind of get a picture of the blood, the amount of blood that was involved in the inauguration of this Old Covenant. We read, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. <clears throat> and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. So they, they said, they said, We're going to do whatever the, the, all the Old Covenant promises. We're going to obey these things. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai. And with with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 5. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So there's, at this time, there's no tabernacle, no temple, so he built an altar, and then he asked, sent some young men to basically offer all the animals as sacrifice, burnt offerings and such, peace offerings. Moses took half of the blood. So all these animals, this is, uh, you know, um, this is the... Uh, all these animals that were sacrificed for the nation. Moses took half of that blood and he put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, the altar that where they, they were offering these animals. What he, uh, so he has half of, what would he do with that? We'll see, the other basin. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So again, they, they reiterated twice, we're going to follow your laws. We're going to obey Verse 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God, we see, inaugurates his covenant through blood. Animal sacrifices are offered. They had just received all the instructions about their various, about sacrifices and offerings that they were to make. And then as the people say, we're, we're going to do, we're going to follow God's commands, we're going to follow God's law. He says, okay, let's, let's ratify this covenant. You agree to this covenant? Well, then animals are sacrificed. Blood is taken. Blood is sprinkled on the altar to purify and cleanse that altar to make it, uh, to uh, set it aside for the Lord's use. And then when the people reiterate that they too are going to, they're going to follow the commands of God, Moses takes the blood and he sp- sprinkles it on all the people as a symbol of the covenant that they have with the God the Father. The Lord had made this covenant with Israel and all because all Israel obeyed to, his, to, to keep his commands, this, this covenant was ratified through blood. Covenants in those days were always ratified with the sacrifice of animals. Even you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, you see um, there that there was going to be animals that are sacrificed as a symbol that if this covenant is broken, that people, the, the different members of the covenant would be treated as, a, as, a, as if they would be these animals, and they, they would die. Their deaths were a symbol of the penalty incurred by the one who breaks the covenant. What's more, though, this blood not only shows the, the penalty, but Old Testament teaches that the shedding of blood was a reminder that death is required to atone 
for sins. All those sacrifices were, were, to, were meant to instruct Israel that blood needed to be shed to cover their sins. We read in Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Because blood is, contains our life. When it's, offered on the, when it's offered, it is a reminder that a blood sacrifice is needed for the atonement of, of our sins. Everyone had to be sprinkled with blood. For everyone there needed a blood sacrifice for their atonement on that day. They needed a substitute for them. And this would become a, be a recurring theme of Israel's worship. For when the tabernacle and later the temple were built in the central place of their worship... Even all the holy objects there would be sprinkled with blood and all their sacrifices involved. Really, the shedding of blood all the time. Daily, in fact. And verse 22 states this key concept for us. That all things are cleansed with blood. And that is with death, with the shedding of blood. For without death, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness Sin against the holy God leads to death. And either we pay with our own death in eternity, or if we wish to live, then someone else must die in our place. Someone else who is innocent and holy and pure, who could represent us, must die in our place. For Israel, throughout their history, the biblical history, the blood of animals offered in faith were the temporary substitute until the coming of Christ. But when Christ came, his blood shed on the cross, his death on the cross, was brought about the fulfillment and the completion of all that the Old Testament pointed to, prefigured. By the way, it's interesting here, even in this verse, that there's that this mention of almost all things are cleansed with blood, right? Almost all things. It alludes to the gracious exception where if a person was extremely poor and they could not afford an animal, they, and we find this in Leviticus 5, for instance, a person who was guilty of sin either had to offer a, a female lamb or goat, right? But if he couldn't afford that, then he or she could bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. But if you're too poor for that, then you could offer a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, grains, part of your harvest. No blood there. And that is simply a a clue, a foreshadowing that the blood of animals actually are not what's necessary for the cleansing of anyone of their sins. Because even an ephah of flour, if you're really poor, if you can't afford it, God doesn't expect you to to give what you don't even have, what he has not provided you. The blood of animals could never take away sins. It was, a, it was merely a ritual that Israel was to observe by faith as a visual reminder to them of what they would need for their forgiveness. The shedding of blood, a death, a substitute. That, and that substitute, particularly prefigured in the Passover lamb that would, needed to die in order to, for them to be saved, was fulfilled, of course, in none other than Jesus Christ. When, whom John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Passover Lamb of God, 
Israel needed faith in the Lord's provision for, for forgiveness. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of Christ. And the old covenant required death because those deaths ultimately pointed to the necessity of Christ's death. That's the, and that's what we want to grasp. The old covenant required a death because it pointed us, it prefigured for us the necessity of Christ's death. Now, the author of Hebrews brings home this, the, the combination of these two points. The new covenant requires a death, the death of Christ. And the old covenant required a death, the death of these animals that would prefigure the death of Christ. And our third point of this passage, in verse 23 to 28, we learn that the author makes his case that Christ's death is the superior death. It's the better death. It's the ultimate death that, is, was what, is, that provides for us our salvation. <clears throat> the death of Christ is better than the death of all the animals sacrificed in the Old Testament. And it's better for us in three ways, as this, the rest of this passage teaches us. First of all, Christ's death paves the way to a better holy place. In verse 23-24, there's a better place that's waiting for us because of Christ's death. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven, in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The tabernacle and eventually the temple were symbolic, they were copies. As important as they were to Israel's worship, as holy to them as it was, we, they were merely copies of what is in heaven where the Lord dwells. Just as the high priest would once a year enter the holy place to offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, so Christ entered the holy place of heaven into the dwelling of place of God with his sacrifice, through his death. He and appears there in the presence of God for us. He's there for you and for me. No, we must grasp that there's no other person could accomplish this. No other one could act as our mediator but no one else with us without sin. No one could ever go into the place where God dwelt, lest they die. But with Christ's death, he entered into the dwelling place of heaven, where, God sit, where he now sits at God's right hand as our intercessor, our mediator, our priest, and our king. And through faith in Christ, we have the hope of entering God's presence one day. Sinners like you and me, when we think about it, we, who are we to approach a holy God? His power is so vast. He is so holy. He spoke this world into creation. And I am an insignificant sinner. I deserve God's wrath. And yet, through Christ, only through Christ's death, I, can enter, I have the hope of entering into his presence one day into that better holy place where Christ is in the noose. And we and you can also enter that place through faith in Christ. In the new covenant, saints have a better holy place through the death of Christ. Next, Christ's death is better because he is a better high priest. These are, by the way, these are recurring themes. And you kind of remember, remember this is a sermon, so there are a lot of recurring themes all throughout this book because this is like a, a, a sermon that is being given in written form. Verse 25 to 26, nor was it 
nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, this is a clear reference to the Old, Old Testament Day of Atonement, where the priest would go in year by year, offer the blood of bull and goats for his own sins and the sins of the people. But Christ's sacrifice of his own blood, that is, his own perfect sinless life, was sufficient to put away sin for everyone for all time. Never would Christ again have to offer another sacrifice. He w- he's not going to have to come again someday. So, ooh, mankind has sinned so much. Uh, my death was not sufficient. I got to go back down and be born again and then die again for people. He doesn't have to do that. Or as some people believe, he doesn't have to keep on dying for us. He has died once for all. He's paid for our sins, past, present, and future. His death is sufficiently paid the sins of every old covenant saint and every new covenant saint. He is a better high priest. And you can even conclude from this that he's a better sacrifice too, but I want to leave that for next week's sermon. He intercedes for us at God's right hand. Satan may appear before him, as we often sing about, and accuse us of being unworthy of our sin. And Satan is correct. But Christ, our high priest, merely points to his own sacrifice as a sufficient payment for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ, our high priest. We have a better high priest. Christ's death is better because of that. Christ's death is also lastly better because in Christ's death, he mediates for us and offers to us a better hope, a better hope than what the old covenant hope could provide. Verse 27, 28, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Verse 27 here is a familiar is a familiar verse, but it's a verse that every soul here needs to take to heart. We should not ignore this. This is a verse that everyone really should take to heart and not ignore. It is clear that what is laid up for us, what is appointed for us, for mankind, is to die once and then comes judgment. Everybody who lives on this earth is going to die, and after we die, physically die, there's going to come a judgment. A time when we must answer to holy God for the life that we've lived. And if anyone thinks that we're going to get a passing grade because maybe we've lived a good life or really good in my really just a good person in, at a heart or I've done a lot of good deeds or I've given away so much of my money to, to good causes, such people are in for a big disappointment. For there is no hope for a sinful man before holy God. All of us are counted as, and all of us are, will be found guilty apart from Christ. We would all face and deserve eternal separation from him in hell. But that's why Christ came. Christ died once also as a man, having been offered by the Lord to bear the sins of many on the cross. That's an allusion, by the way, to Isaiah 53, 12. 
and Christ has entered the holy place of heaven with his sacrifice to provide the hope of salvation. He doesn't need to come back to make another sacrifice. Christ's death was and is sufficient. And he will once in one day he is going to come again. It says he will appear a second time. This is our hope. We have a hope that he's going to appear again, return. Without reference to sin, he's not going to come to die for sin anymore, but he's going to die, come to take us to be with him. He's going to come and complete the salvation, bring us to glory. No matter how many sins you and I may commit, how many times you may fail, those of you who put your trust in Christ's death have a better hope at your death or at his return, whichever comes first. For he has promised, this is our hope, that he will take us to be with him, who will be with with him forever. And so hopefully you see and kind of just been encouraged to reflect upon the superiority of Christ's death today. Uh, something, uh, two Saturdays ago, uh, and I'm concluding now, uh, two Saturdays ago, our church held its annual blood drive. Um, it was on Veterans Day, so I know some of you guys were traveling, couldn't all be there. Uh, I know we had, uh, uh, but we had about a little less than 20 people show up. I want to express my appreciation for all of you who came to give uh, your blood, even those who came to give blood, but you could not because, you know, your uh, various, you know, uh, your results or um, maybe your iron was low and things like that. But I want to appreciate those of you who did come out and those of you who were part of coordinating it. As many of you know, there's a national blood shortage, and so uh, you, you, when we give blood, it potentially goes to three different people to, to save their lives who are in, in times of emergency. But when you give blood... When you give your blood, you are giving life to another, right? That's what you're doing. You're actually saving someone who needs blood or they're going to die without blood. When we give blood, we give life. And I hope as a church we'll continue to do that. So that Why do we give blood? Why do we have this event? It's not just because uh, they need blood. It's because we believe that there's, when we give blood, it's a testimony of something greater, in our, in our, that's, that we know about. Because we know that someone came to give his own blood to save not just a, three lives, but to save the lives of all who believe in him. And that, of course, is Christ. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ prefigured and prophesied in the Old Testament ratified the new covenant as first coming and mediates between sinful man and holy God a better hope through a better priest who is in a better place, a place where you and I who believe in him eagerly await for him, where we will go when he returns to take us to be with him at his second coming. And so I hope this encourages you to keep holding on to Jesus, especially and though, when the time draws near, that death comes and decay comes and, de- and we, we can see the end when all other hope fails and they all will fail, only our hope in Christ remains. So hold on to Jesus. 
Do not fall away. Don't, don't lose your, your trust in your faith in him. Let me uh, just provide three kind of questions for reflection, thoughts uh, for us. Could anyone else have mediated between God and man? Just think about that. Reflect upon that truth. Uh, what aspect of Christ's death most encouraged you and your, today is in the sermon? And then thirdly, in what or whom, ask yourself, is your hope in this life? These are, are I hope they're obvious answers to them, but it, it's worth taking the time to, to meditate upon how you, why you arrive at these conclusions. And so I hopefully encourage us, all of us, to hold fast to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truths that are recorded in, your, in this part of Hebrews chapter 9. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. We thank you that it is in, through his blood that we have a better hope through a better high priest who is now in a better place at your right hand. And we thank you, Father, for the, the hope that we have through faith in Christ that one day we shall be there with you and because of him who sits at your right hand. We thank you, Father. We pray that as some of us may be experiencing death drawing near, we pray especially that this truth would be our comfort. And for all the rest of us who may be for, where death seems very far, Lord, may you still help us to grow in our understanding that what the blood of Christ accomplished for us in the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope that we have all throughout this life. And Lord, we pray that, they, that you would continue to glorify yourself, the, this church, as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.